0: I cannot tell you how much I love listening to Alan, so it's great to have him. This week has been... uh... No. (laughs) This week, honestly, has been a longing fulfilled. It's been uh, something of a a family reunion. But but more than that, I, I was thinking of the first time I ever introduced my future wife to our Zimbabwean family. And it was a long drive up to Zimbabwe. And I was nervous uh, because I love my family, but there's always that crazy uncle. And I was just going, I think she's going to like them. I hope she's going to like them. And uh, this has been a little bit like this because this has become our family. And we have these, I'm not saying you're my wives, but uh, these churches... (laughs) That uh, that we just love all over this nation, yeah. uh, in Canada, in Australia, and there's been this like, I I, th- I think you're gonna like each other. <laughs> uh, there is a crazy uncle. Uh, he's got a beard. No, uh, there's actually a lot of crazy uncles with beards. Yeah, yeah. But um, and uh, he's one of the most likable ones in the family, isn't he? But uh, honestly, my, my heart is is so full, and um. Because of that, sometimes my, my eyes leak. Uh, that's because of joy. But um, I have the, the, the privilege of, uh, of, of closing this landing. And it comes with a bit of apprehension, I know, because you're trying to land the plane and, and, and many people's eye is on their plane that's about to take off. Their bags are packed, they're ready to go, as John Denver said. And uh, <laughs> I'm just asking... I'm just asking that uh, you, would, you would just give some full attention. Um, I've been so aware of, of a thread of the Holy Spirit uh, through the sessions, talking far more, as Donnie said, about the, the work, worker than the work, uh, about the who more than the how, and there have been some great handles. But I've been asked to, to talk on uh, fruitful leaders and their souls, and, uh, and so if you're looking at this session being kind of the pep talk up and at them, I think it's going to land there, but, but we're going to journey through a valley of, of introspection at first. I think uh, it might get worse before it gets better, but it, it, it will get better. And I want to talk about uh, what David calls the weaned soul of a leader. The weaned soul of a leader. Psalm 131, it's one of the Psalms of ascent, and I'm going to spend just about 10 minutes on that Psalm, and then we're going to look at at David's life in particular, and uh, not just his Psalm, but the biography of how this man was weaned. Good stuff. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Wanna ask how, as leaders, do we ensure that our souls do not regress as our ministries progress? How do our souls not regress as our ministries progress? Tim Keller's wife, Kathy Keller, wrote a great article on ministry and the soul, called faking it. And in it, she said, ministry will either make you a better Christian or a worse Christian. None of us are immune to the danger of gaining the world and losing our soul. And honestly, I am so full of faith with what God wants to do in our togetherness here. But none of us are immune in the growing momentum of this family on mission of having souls that might regress. John Bunyan wrote that old classic called Pilgrim's Progress, and C.S. Lewis centuries later wrote a retort called called Pilgrim's Regress. And he talked about how the Pilgrim's Progress is not just straightforward. It's often three steps forward and two steps back. And sometimes, especially for for those of us in ministry, there's such pressure to seem to have it together. And it can result in the regress of the soul. And here in this psalm, this is King David towards the end of his life. It's a psalm of ascent. The psalms of ascent were a collection of of ten psalms that the people of Israel sang on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. It was like their national anthems. And this psalm begins super personal. Lord, Lord. This is like King David giving his personal prayer journal to Israel and saying, it can become one of your anthems. How humble for this powerful king, Lord. It's not addressed to Israel, it's addressed to the Lord. It's like Israel and us are eavesdropping on David's conversations with the eternal God. We want to take off our our shoes, we're walking on holy ground, Lord. And what he's saying is, To Israel is, is your king, is not just progressing as a king in public ministry, but actually there's been a progress of his interior life in his soul. It's a very hopeful psalm, but by assumption he's saying, I wasn't always this way. I wasn't always peaceful. I wasn't always calm. I wasn't always quiet. I wasn't always content. But Israel, put your hope in God because he has empowered me to progress from this place to that, and he will empower you too. It's a very hopeful psalm. It's intimate. It's humble. My eyes are not haughty or my eyes are not lifted up. David's throne is exalted, but but his heart is bowed down. He has not forgotten where he came from. He has not forgotten the sheep and the harp. He has not forgotten the sling and the five smooth stones and the giant slaying power of his God. He's remembered where he's come from. My eyes are not haughty. It's a psalm of humility. It's a psalm of simplicity. I do not occupy myself with things too great and marvelous for me. We know David is a wrestler. The psalms are full of the language of wrestle and even lament at times. Why, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord? And if we look at David's life, we wonder what he's talking about. Maybe he's talking about the fact that his mother and father rejected him as he writes in the psalm. Maybe he's talking about the fact that his best friend died on him. What a mystery. Maybe he's talking about the fact that that the guy who was supposed to be his mentor hounded him in jealousy for a decade. Oh, Lord, why? Maybe he's talking about the mystery, the tragedy, that his own wife despised him as he worshipped God. His own son rebelled against him and hung dead in a tree. It's not that he doesn't wrestle, but he's not preoccupied with it. He's not obsessed with it. He's reached a stillness of soul in spite of these great unanswered questions. Perhaps there's some unmet desires. He was an ambitious king. Oh, but Lord, I'm not preoccupied with these things. What a journey, a journey of simplicity. It's a journey of responsibility. I have quieted my soul Within me. If we didn't know David better, we'd, we'd think it was kind of self-help, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, but we know it's not. It's through the power of the Lord that he has quieted his soul. But he has, he has actually grabbed his soul by the scruff of its neck and saying, I am the boss of my feelings. Soul, you're not the boss of me. We know that feelings, we've heard it often, are a wonderful servant, but a wicked master. And he's saying, my soul, you will not master me. I have quieted my soul through the help of the Lord. It's a psalm of maturity. I've gone from here to there. It's a psalm of hope. He's not just teasing Israel. He's not teasing us. He's saying Israel, put your hope in God. He can do do the same. It's not a vague hope. It's a weaned hope. That is, that is the, 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 the central word. My soul is weaned within me. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Now, we can't talk about weaning without talking about nursing a little bit. So, so forgive me, but the, but the Bible goes there. Uh, being weaned essentially means moving from breast to bottle. But being weaned is not just about a change of of liquid to, to solids. It's actually about the timing. A weaned child does not get fed on demand. A weaned child fits into the family rhythms of feeding. In other words, what David is saying is the journey that the Lord has led me on is that I realize God is not on tap. He is not on demand. He's not on my clock. He's not my cosmic valet. It's funny how we look at children who have a pacifier, a dummy for South Africans, a pacifier in a pram, in a stroller, (laughs) Or or that suck their thumb. And we go, oh, man, these people, these kids must just grow up. But actually, a pacifier is a massive milestone of maturity from a baby that threw its tantrum because it wanted the breast. Think about it. This child is learning to quiet its soul without getting fed on demand. Do you get the picture? We were in South Africa very recently, and our cousins, it was just wonderful family reunion, sleepover. And my one niece, Kezia, who's six years old, came and had a sleepover, and she came with three big fluffy toys. And I said, Kezia, what are those for? She says, well, I need them to go to sleep. And I, the facetious preacher, said, isn't Jesus enough, Kezia? And she turned to me and she said, well, yes, but he's not exactly cuddly. (laughs) But actually for Cassia, even though she's not finished her maturity, she's far more mature than when she just screamed in her pram, in her her crib, in her cot, whatever you want to call it, for her mother. She actually realized, "I, I need to quiet myself. Are you getting the picture? A powerful picture. He has David, this humble king, powerful king saying, I'm like a child that's been weaned. Spurgeon says this about weaning. Got to throw in a quote from Spurgeon sometime. The task of weaning to the mother is trying and troublesome. The infant cries and seems to sob out his heart. He thinks it's very hard in her and knows not what she means by her seeming cruelty. And the mother's fondness renders all her firmness necessary to keep her at the process. And sometimes she also weeps at the persistence of his dear looks and big tears and stretched out hands. But it must be done, and therefore, though she pities, she perseveres. And after a while, he is soothed and satisfied, forgets the breast. And no longer feels even a hankering after his former pleasure. But how is the weaning of the child accomplished? By the removal of the object in the absence and concealment of the mother. By the substitution of other food. By the influence of time. So it is with us. A weaned child. A weaned soul. A weaned leader. Is one that realizes that God is not on demand We see it with Christians in our own churches, people who become new Christians. How isn't it amazing and kind of frustrating that God just seems to answer their prayers so immediately? Have you seen that? Like new Christians, they're just like, they come to me and they say, You know, I was just, I couldn't make my rent. And so I was just in my room, like going, I've got 500 bucks to to get before the landlord chucks me out. And and, and I'm just praying, Oh Lord. And and next thing, just boom, there's a knock on the door and there's this envelope with 500 bucks. It's amazing. Oh man, I just didn't have a job and I was just on my knees and and, and just next thing, boom, the phone rings and just like, i got this dream job. It's amazing. Oh man, I was praying for a church and and I I just bumped into this person, just boom, I was led to this amazing church. And you just go, God is so kind. He's a good father. He loves to give good gifts to his children. And especially when people just become Christians, he just seems by his kindness to answer their prayers immediately. Isn't it amazing how over the passage of time, the the answers... (laughs) get a little bit more subtle, sometimes no, sometimes not yet, sometimes not this, but that, if that same Christian five years on before rent is due, So Lord, won't you just give me my rent, please, a loving father says, stop spending all your money on fair trade coffee and designer tattoos and save, because that's about maturity, isn't it? And God is giving us a new gift of maturity. And sometimes if that Christian five years down the track is saying, Oh Lord, just, just just give me a job. God is just saying, stay in the job that I gave you. That's maturity, my gift to you. Oh Lord, give me a church. Stay in the good church that I sent you to. And, and, and we see God's kindness expressed to us in weaning, in discipline. And I have, For me, this is a comforting psalm. But it's also a very discomforting psalm because I, I wonder. I found myself introspective, going, "Am I, am I a weaned child? Am I content? Am I quiet?" I mean, in this day and age where we can get stuff at the swipe of a thumb, at the flick of a button, and Netflix and eHarmony and whatever it is, <laughs> Amazon, and, and 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 some of these benefits are are great. I use Amazon and. Netflix and not so much eHarmony, but, but, but here's the deal. Here is the deal. No sociologist, no psychologist. Yeah, yeah. FarmersOnly.com. Bring it in. Bring it in. Bring it in. No psychologist would ever dare to describe our age. As an age of calm, quiet contentment, who are more discontent and demanding than ever before, ruled by our inordinate desires. Here's the thing about weaned. A baby desperate for milk is not desperate for a bad thing. They are desperate for a good thing that has become an ultimate thing. We know it, we've read it in Tim Keller's book on idols, it rolls off the tongue amazingly, we preach it. An idol is not always a bad thing, an idol is often a good thing that has become an ultimate thing. And being weaned is actually that we're no longer slaves to our inordinate desires. It's not actually the object that's always wrong, but it's the inordinate desire. It's not that David doesn't have questions, desires, ambitions, It's just actually that he's no longer a slave to them. And I want us to look at a fairly obscure passage in 1 Chronicles 20 that this could well have been talking about. We are not sure. And as I've said, there are other areas of desire and question and mystery that David could have been talking to. But I'm, I'm almost certain that David was referring to this time in his kingship where there are three things that were actually good things that God weaned him of. And I believe he wants to wean us of them as men and women, as leaders, as a family of churches together on mission. I'm going to read this passage very quickly. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, Joab led out the army and ravaged the country of the Ammonites and came and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem, and Joab struck down Rabbi and overthrew it. And David took the crown of their king from his head, and he found that it weighed a talent of gold, and in it was a precious stone, and it was placed on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount, and he brought out the people who were in it, and set them to labor with saws and irons and picks and axes, And thus David did all to the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Just skip over to chapter 21, verse 1. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring me a report that I may know their number. But Joab said, may the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. Are they not my Lord, the king, all of them, my Lord's servants? Why then should my Lord require this? Why should it be a case of guilt for Israel? But should it be a a, a cause of guilt for Israel? But the king's word prevailed against Joab. So Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came back to Jerusalem. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to David. And in all Israel were 1.1 million men who drew the sword. And in Judas, 470,000 who drew the sword. But he did not include Levi and Benjamin. For the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. But God was displeased with this thing, and he struck Israel. I'm not a big thing for... Alliteration, the three C's, the four P's, etc. But actually, in this passage, they are presented to us as three C's very clearly. That God is weaning Israel's king, David, of an inordinate desire for comfort, for control, and for counting. Verse 1 In the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, Joab led out the army. But David remained at Jerusalem. We know this is an ominous thing. We know in his inordinate desire for Bathsheba earlier on, it was at the same time in the spring of the year when kings went out for battle, David stayed in Jerusalem. It's ominous. But this time it's not going to be lust after a woman. It's going to be lust after power and control and defining how strong we are. And there's this tragic, tragic picture that we see where David, who, who was this warrior shepherd, David about whom the women of Israel sang, David has slain his 10,000s, now he's at home in the palace while Joab, the commander of the army, is slaying. And even worse, he comes back with this crown and he places it on David's head. And you go, This is a king now who wants. The crown of privilege, but will not wear the sword of sacrifice. It's, it's tragic, isn't it? Inordinate comfort. And I know as we get older, as we... The thing about this is, is these people together here, there are actually quite a number of us that have been doing it for a number of years and the privilege of doing it for a number of years is that is that god gives you the grace of margins uh, you have a team around you that 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 wants you to rest and rest is good it's important that it wants to give you family time as we grow we get more specialized Our, we start to get some money in the bank and it's a wonderful thing and i know that's not all of you there's some people especially marketplace people that are just saying i have no margins And in some ways, I'm not speaking to you about comfort as much. But to all of us, margins are good things of rest, of finance, of rhythms, of families. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But what we see in David is that his margins have become so rigid. And he's settled into comfort. I'm asking whether as leaders we could be weaned of an inordinate desire for comfort, whatever that looks like. Because what God is doing in our churches, through our churches together, will require us asking Jesus, are you wanting to invade my margins in this place? As I move on and as I grow and as our teams get bigger, Lord, am I beginning to wear the crown of privilege and not carry the sword of sacrifice? My friends, I have allowed the sword of this word to pierce my own soul. I love the fact that we can balance our books by the grace of God. I love the fact that our church is growing and staff is growing. I love the fact that I have a team that, that cares for Renell and my family and, and, and rest. and. You know, my last birthday, I, my wife gave me this incredible Eames chair. It's this old retro rocker chair. She says, you work hard. You need a good recliner. And I'm just going, I'm getting to be that guy. (laughs) And my favorite thing is to get up early on a Saturday morning, having recorded the British Premier League soccer, and get up and sit in my Eames chair and watch while no one is awake. There is nothing wrong with that. I think the Lord takes great delight in British Premier League soccer. But I tell you what, you know, in it, I've been praying, Lord, I want to do the work of an evangelist. I don't just want to preach, I want to model what it is to 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 be winning souls for you. And there's this one young guy who I've been sitting with who's been visiting our church and, and, and has been seeking, and he's a law student. He's he's bright, and, and he's been sitting, we've been sitting one on one. He's kind of in some ways been invading my my schedule, but he's hungry to know, he wants reasons to believe. And you know what? He loves British Premier League soccer. So so now I don't get that, that time on my own because he's always just either wanting to watch with me or otherwise texting, Oh, wasn't Arsenal amazing? Wasn't Liverpool amazing? I'm just going, Oh Lord, my margins are being invaded. We baptized him last week. One of the major steps that I saw him take after about three or four coffees with him, he says, I hear you guys pray up a mountain together. Can I join? So of course you can join, but it's going to be a little bit uncomfortable because I don't know if you're used to guys praying. He says, I've never prayed aloud in my life. I say, well, well, look, I'll, I'll stand right next to you and make sure these crazy Christians don't weird you out. It's going to be okay. And there's about 80 men up on the hill praying, and he has this guy, and I, I'm just feeling so uncomfortable for him. And we're praying around in a circle like we did, and whenever it gets to him, I, I pray in his, in his place so he doesn't feel awkward and gets to... About the third time round, and I'm just about to pray in his place, and and he prays. He prays. The first prayer he's ever prayed out loud. And he starts, he says, God, and I think that's a good start. (laughs) God, he says, thank you that I feel safe with these men. He says, thank you that I can trust this community. He says, thank you that although leadership is hard, you're teaching me it's good. I just think, oh, God, you're invading my margins. But look at this. Look at this. You know, I mean, even this morning, I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just seeing all these church partners. I'm just going, I know God is stirring some of our people, some of our leaders. Oh, Lord, this is so uncomfortable. You're invading the margins of a great team. Oh, Lord. Kevin, Shannon, and Daniel, and Marshall. Oh, Lord. Here's the thing. that The Holy Spirit is the comforter. But the Holy Spirit, the comforter, leads us to discomfort. He led Jesus to discomfort. And when we are led by the comforter to uncomfortable places, we treasure his comfort even more. And I wonder if we can be weaned from an inordinate desire for comfort and an inordinate desire for control. There's this tragic seven words where David, who is back at the palace, now goes, man, we're really strong. Let's see how strong we are. And he goes to Joab, the commander of the army, who's right in the thick of it. He sees the powerful hand of God, and Joab's just going, no, this is a very bad idea. Let's not count, because whatever we've got, God is big enough. And it says, and the word of the king prevailed against Joab. Oh, my goodness. I wish I had more time on this, but my friends, in our leadership teams, I believe in a first among equals. I believe in visionary leaders. But we cannot, as lead elders, be kings whose word always prevails. That is control. And we see Joab. Joab pushes back. Joab is a great example of a follower. He pushes back and he says, no, that's a very bad idea. But then we see actually Joab says, okay, Because this is not clearly breaking the law. This is kind of a gray area. And he says, I think it's a stupid gray area, but actually, all right, you're the leader. I've given my perspective, but fine. And he places David in God's hands. He doesn't play God. He says, okay, that's fine. We'll count. And God has his way with this leader. I think David at this point is an example of how not to lead. But Joab is a great example of how to follow. To be strong, to say, no, 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 I don't think that's, that's good. But actually, once the decision has been made, especially if it's not breaking Scripture clearly, you go, okay, that's fine. I'm placing this leader in God's hands. It's the same in terms of marriages. Headship and submission. Early on in our marriage, Ronell and I were trying to work this out. How does this work? And we sat with this couple thinking they'd help us. And the wife says, well, you know, yeah, he's the head, but I'm the neck that turns the head. You see, there's two kinds of control here. One is domination from someone, the king, whose word just prevails all the time. And the other is manipulation from, from a follower, the neck that turns the head. Both are playing God. God doesn't like it. and God doesn't like it. Can I call us leaders to be strong, courageous leaders? But can I call us to be humbly collaborative? collaboration is costly both to ego and to time but I tell you what we see it in scripture we don't just lead teams we're on teams I'm so thankful for men and women on our team who are strong we have been saved so many times by their perspective where I couldn't see it I'm telling you and there are times when I just go oh my gosh are we collaborating again around this But then I think of the times when I've been saved. But they're also a team that will say, once we've discussed, we're going to arrive at consensus. And if we can't, we trust you. Go and hear God. Oh, teams like that. Finally, the inordinate desire for counting. I I am fascinated by this passage on counting because the Bible is full of numbers. There's even a book called Numbers in the Bible. And Jesus counted a lot. Counting was good shepherding. The good shepherd counted the sheep and found one was missing. The good steward. I mean, mean, Jesus is a counter. Two talents, three talents, five talents. Counting is not bad in and of itself. But when counting, good counting becomes ultimate. You go, oh, there's something wrong. I am so grateful. I'm talking up my team, but I'm honest for a team that is diligent in the details. I mean, honestly, we report like nothing like there's no tomorrow. I mean, everything budgeting, attendance, baptisms, life groups, I just love it. it's, it's good stewardship, good shepherding. And I'm so grateful that that we're growing on those fronts. It's amazing. But I tell you what, good counting can turn into bad counting where God brings his judgment very quick. How? Why? Why did God strike 70,000? Why is this bad counting? How do we get into bad counting? I ask you in, in this culture of due diligence, what is bad counting? I think bad counting is where we start to put our confidence in human resources and natural resources more than heaven's resources. You see, Joab was in the thick of the battle. And and what you see in these battles before chapter 21 is every single time, it was against all odds battles. No matter how many soldiers Israel had, it wasn't enough. And yet the all-surpassing power of God came upon the Israelites. And they won against all odds victories. The problem is, David had forgotten the giant slaying God, five smooth stones. He'd become the strategic king up in his his palace rather than the humble, spirit empowered soldier in the trenches. He'd forgotten the rock from which he was hewn, Abraham and Sarah, these old married couple with a barren womb to whom God says, Look at the stars. Look at the seashore. So numerous will your descendants be. If we're going to count, my friends, let's do our due diligence, but let's count on the Lord. If we're going to count, let's look at the stars and the sand on the seashore. What God is calling us to as teams, as churches, and together as a family on mission, we do not have, we will never have enough resources. There will always be a gap between what we have and what God calls us to. And can I call us humbly away from relying? I have seen at times in my soul, we did a report a while ago of, of our numeric growth last year, and Eric sent it, and my heart soared because it was so amazing. And then he came back and he said, Oh, sorry, correction, it's not quite as amazing. And my heart drooped. And I was like, There isn't, an, we'd still grown pretty solidly. But I was like, look at my heart. It's like a roller coaster. It's something wrong. My heart is not anchored in the God of the stars, the God of the sand and the seashore. Oh, Lord, anchor our souls. Anchor our souls. I'm going to land with this, that Jesus ultimately empowers us to be weaned souls. Jesus ultimately empowers us to be weaned of comfort, control, and counting. Hebrews 6, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. A hope that enters the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. How is Jesus a weaned soul for us? Well, firstly, he has gone before as a forerunner. He is our ultimate example as someone who did not grasp, did not throw out his toys with a tantrum, but gave up privilege gave up power gave up his own will gave up his own life not my will but yours be done my friends he is our forerunner of this weaned soul lord if it's possible let this cup be taken but not my will yours be done he has gone before us jesus empowers us to a weaned soul because he has made a way for us He's a high priest who has gone into the curtain, behind the curtain. The temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. You ever sat in economy class, peeping through the curtain at first class, going, I wish I could be there. (laughs) The blood of Jesus, the body of Jesus has opened the curtain to first class where you and I could not pay, but he paid. And here's the thing in the Psalms, I know I'm landing passionately, I do not apologize. If there's one thing David demands, I must have this, I don't have to have that, I don't have to have that, I don't, I must have this Lord, it's your presence. So what Dallas Willard calls the expulsive power of a new affection, the only way we can cope without the things we desire is that we have the presence of God and we have access to the presence of God through Jesus our high priest. Honestly, more delightful than this family reunion. I've felt such a closeness of the presence of God as we've gathered. There's nothing like it. Nothing. Nothing. We can demand it, friends. Not in arrogance, but in humble confidence. Jesus, you've made a way. And finally, he has made an appeal. He has made appeal. He's the forerunner the great high priest who is touched by our humanity and our infirmity. He has kept the nail scars in heaven. He knows what it is to go without, to long for. And this verse says that he makes an appeal on our behalf. He is our advocate. He is our intercessor. You know, the, the, the one thing that will keep us from having a tantrum and we don't get what we want when we want it, is knowing that Jesus is making an appeal for us. In fact, we have two intercessors. The Holy Spirit is praying for us, and Jesus is making an appeal for us. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord. Before the throne of God above, I have a great and perfect plea. The great unchanging I am. ever lives and pleads for me thank you Jesus thank you Lord that you desire not just for our ministries to progress but our souls to progress we thank you that you have made a way we thank you that you have gone before we thank you that you are sympathetic that you feel so deeply the wrestles of our souls and you comfort, and you strengthen, and you encourage. And as we go to the table, we bring our souls before you, and we bring the fact that we so often become entitled and demanding, and we say we cannot become weaned without your power. And so as we come to worship and and come to your table, we thank you for your body, broken for us, for our wholeness. We thank you for your blood poured out, shed for us, for our forgiveness. And we come in repentance, but we come in confidence, knowing that you are our gracious redeemer and provider. And we ask that a mark of this family on mission together is that we would be weaned souls Loving the good things you've given us, but not demanding them and being deeply satisfied by you, Jesus, our bread of life. Let's stand together.